0: This is Joseph Gervasi. I'm here with Rich Hoke. It's the, the 6th of March 2013. Uh, we are recording in the South America Room here of the International House in West Philadelphia and this is part of the Loud Loudfast Philly series. Hello Rich. Hello Joe. Hi. Uh, so I guess uh, to begin if you could kind of tell me where where did you grow up and in what year were you born?
1: Uh, I was born in 1965 I grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania on a farm uh, near Harrisburg, near Gettysburg.
0: Mm-hmm. And what were your interests, uh, you know, as a young person, uh, music-wise or otherwise?
1: Music-wise, I started playing saxophone in about fifth grade.
0: So that was to get chicks.
1: Uh, yeah, mostly. Um, <clears throat> uh, I went to Catholic school for twelve years. So since the Catholic school didn't, the hi- Catholic high school didn't have enough members to field a full-on marching band, they would uh, go to the grade school, starting at about grade five or six, and bring those kids up uh, into marching band. So since I started that, I was able to go to the high school uh, from grade school sometimes, and uh, I started out in marching band two years before I actually went to high school. Yeah, nice. And at the same thing with that, you know, I was able to, you know, in sixth grade or whatever, I was able to get on the bus with high school kids and... Uh, you know, drive around to state competitions and, and things like that, you know. Uh, Trinity High School was like a, uh, in our class, which was like for a very small school, uh, we competed in marching band competitions. So in addition to the football games, we would do, I don't know, 10 or 12 or 15 competitions, you know. We'd do a marching band. We'd do a football game one day and then a competition the next day. And... uh that's where I first started really partying and playing music uh, on the back of the band bus with the Yakubowski sisters and like uh, the older, the other older people from uh, from the marching band, you know.
0: They're pretty welcoming to you, you know, even though you were a younger person.
1: Well, you had to, you had to sort of earn it. Even at that time, though, we were playing pretty square music in, in the marching band and, and concert band as well once I, once I finally got there, got to ninth grade. Um, at that time, I was also into things like... Uh, Kiss and Cheap Trick, I guess, and uh, Queen. I got uh, I got all those records at Kmart. I used to buy record albums at Kmart and at Kresge's.
0: What's Kresge's? Is that a regional thing?
1: Kresge's was uh, I don't I think it was actually pretty big. There was like Kresge's Walmart. I'm sorry, Woolworths. Woolworth, yeah, yeah. Uh, It was one of those sort of like department stores with a lunch counter type mm-hmm. thing, you know? Yeah. And I think it eventually got eaten up by by uh, by Kmart. I don't know, like in the '70s or '80s, probably. And, uh, so then I, you know, I was able to talk to the hipper, older sort of kids, I guess, and, uh, work my way to the back of the band bus where we would, uh, play cassette tapes of, uh, just outrageous bands like Led Zeppelin and Frank Zappa and stuff like that, you know. And, uh, even then, like, those older kids were sorted of into more... What I would call square music, you know, your uh, your Foreigner and uh, your Led Zeppelin and things like that. Whereas I was thinking more like uh, Kiss and AC/DC. Uh, around that time, I was reading Cream magazine also, which you could get at the uh, the one grocery store near where I was growing up at, and I was able to read about like the CBGB's punk scene. And uh, so, is
0: this probably like late seventies, or do you think you're into the early eighties? I
1: graduated or? from high school in '83, so. Uh, 79 it. would be when I started high school, so 78, 77 would yeah. be when I started marching band, and 76 would be when I started playing, I guess, my mm-hmm. so math correct.
0: So you're seeing some of this, this punk stuff coming in through Cream really early on in the game.
1: Yeah, and you know, I read about a lot of these bands, but you couldn't, uh... I couldn't really buy the records, you know, just because I was, lived in the middle
0: of a field. You know, <laughs> right. and if you, Cal's probably not selling the record.
1: Right. And if you uh, you know, if you did go to like the Kmart or whatever on a big trip, you know, they didn't have bands that were like radical and underground at Kmart like Blondie or things like that, you know, yeah. before they had their hits.
0: Yeah.
1: Um I think it was I think it was when I started high school, so it had to be about 81 or 2. That a friend of my mother's gave me a gift certificate, and I got uh, for a record store in a mall, uh, which I had never been to before. My mother took me to that, and I bought three records: the Boston Not LA compilation, uh, the SSD Control record "Get It Away" (not the first one), and uh, Department of Youth Services (DYS) Brotherhood album.
0: Yeah, that's a three fine choices. I'm,
1: I'm sorry, and I actually I uh, also got the Dix "Kill from the Heart." Right, right. And uh, I hadn't really heard any of these bands, but I saw like the punk section or whatever, and I figured a band called The Dicks. I get that. <laughs> yeah. I just basically like the cover
0: art on the others, you know? So, is this really your first exposure to actually hearing this music that you had been reading about, or did you hear anything? I, any I think
1: before that I had Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables, or around that time I also got Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables. No, that had to come later because I, I went to summer school one time. Uh, uh, I did like a, a traveling thing when I was in high school. I went to a college for a summer, and I met a girl there. I was like, "Oh, if you're into the Sex Pistols, the Sex Pistols were very big, actually. You could you could buy that record, and I did buy that record at Kmart, and it was it was all around. That was you know super hype when that came out. So I had that as well. But uh, I guess that might have been between my second and third year of high school, and I met a girl there, and she's like, "Oh, if you're into all this music, then you got to get this Dead Kennedys record, and that's when I got Fresh Fruit for Rotten Vegetables." and I think until I think that's about all the records I had man I had maybe twenty or thirty records when I came to college in 1983 moved to to Philadelphia
0: Okay. so when you were listening to these things did did they appeal to you in a certain way like do you think that they were saying something to you you know maybe as someone who felt somewhat alienated or I don't know Um, if you did but...
1: yeah pretty much so you know I was pretty much an outsider in my high school and uh... you know so it appealed to me socially that way but also the the sort of nihilistic politics of the Sex Pistols was one of the first uh, things that I sort of latched onto, and then the Dead Kennedys as well, like that, and uh, also the Clash, London Calling. When that came out, I was able to score that at a yard sale within a few months of it coming out, probably from somebody who liked it and didn't bought it and didn't like it, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was also a big uh, a big science fiction reader, and when I got to high school, I had an English teacher that started turning me on to sort of like. A, 1984 and Brave New World, and lots of Anthony Anthony Burgess, and I was also reading a lot of Asimov, the Foundation Trilogy, um, that kind of stuff, and uh, a lot of Kurt Vonnegut, a lot of Slaughterhouse-Five, I got that in freshman year of high school, and then I read uh, everything that Kurt Vonnegut had out before I left high school. So, I was pretty familiar with the uh, 1984, The World Is Gonna End, sort of apocalyptic scenario well before I like got got into punk rock you know and uh... that that all sort of culminated in my punk rock lifestyle where me and like the people I hung around with you know we were pretty sure that in 1984 you know ronald wilson reagan Right, sick, sick. That, you know, things weren't going to last much longer. So, you know, we should just, like, make like the Sex Pistols did and Johnny Rotten and just be radical punks. and. This
0: is back when you are still at home? In
1: my last year or two of high school, I started stretching out a little more. And then, you know, I, I was sort of doing it on my own. You know, there, uh, there were a couple other kids in high school that I would hung around with. You know, like maybe we went to the Rocky Hart Picture Show or, you know, smoked weed, you know, once in like a year and hung out and listened to records. Um, there was like, I remember when uh, when MTV came on the air, I, uh, I think I must have been able to drive by then because we went to a party at a guy's house and he lived, I don't know, 20, 30 miles away and they had cable TV there. So we were able to watch MTV come on. And, uh, yeah, so I guess that was more sort of like your new wave punk rock, just starting to get radical sort of thing until I moved to Philadelphia and met other more like-minded people you know just where I was there wasn't anybody where I was living and where I was going to school there were people that were sort of interested in new way there were a lot of new waivers you know um and when I say a lot I mean like you know if the school was you know eighty percent jocks and five percent smart people and ten percent new waivers something like that you know It was, it was a, it it definitely wasn't like today, you know, like kids can go to high school today with a mohawk or an earring or anything like that, you know, and if you did something like that in my high school, people would just be astonished, you know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know what to do, you know, Mm -hmm. they would call the police
0: or something, you know. So you came into Philly, what, about 84 or so? No, I got here in September of 1983 to start classes. Okay, Mm -hmm. and what school were you going to?
1: University of Pennsylvania.
0: Okay. Uh so do you come into a music scene of Philadelphia of the time?
1: Yeah. Uh that was like the uh I don't know, I guess like the quote-unquote hardcore punk scene was rolling here then and I I joined that real quick. Uh you know, like I met a guy in my oh within the first couple of days of uh moving into the dorm at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, a guy named Mark and he was like, "Oh, you got a Dead Kennedys record? Well, here I have this Black Flag record." So we traded records and then he from someone that he knew at home had told him that the place to go to find punk rockers in Philadelphia was on South Street. So, you know, we had to go to like our, uh, what do they call them, your resident advisor and ask him where South Street was and how to get there, you know. Um, and back in that time, in 1983, Penn kids didn't really leave the campus, you know, unless they had like armed oh, cool. guards or somebody holding their hand. And, it, you know, it wasn't like today where you can look on your phone and find out where a place is, you know. We had to figure out, and we were we had just got here, so we Not had yet. to figure out where it was. We had mm-hmm. to figure out how to get there, which included, like, how to ride a subway, you know. Um, there were times that we would just walk, I know, because you could just cross over the St- South Street Bridge, and we didn't... You know, we weren't sure how to get there on the subway. We'd get lost on it. You know, Philadelphia's not necessarily known
0: for being friendly and and helping folks out with uh, how to use it. And at that
1: time in Philadelphia, at 5 o'clock, every office building in Center City shut off the lights, locked the doors, and left. If you were, if it was 6.30 on a Wednesday afternoon in Center City and you wanted to run through the streets naked, nobody was going to see you doing that except for like a couple people living on the street or... I, I don't know, maybe a nighttime delivery man or, or something like that. You know, the whole center city just cleared out, and you could pretty much do what you want. You know, you could. I mean, we would hop on a skateboard, ride down the middle of South Street, drinking forties while we're skateboarding. You know, mm-hmm. and nobody would, yeah, nobody, nobody would really say nothing. anything. Yeah. You know, um, there just there just wasn't anybody around to pay attention to something like that. Mm-hmm. So uh, this guy Mark had heard that at South Street is where all the punk rockers were. We went down there and that's where we were able to find Zipperhead and we were able to go in there and look at flyers for shows. And that's the only way we knew that there were shows around. We'd have to look at that flyer, take one if they had extras, and then we would go to the show. And at the show you would get a flyer for the next
0: week's show. Mm-hmm. Um, so where, where were you going to for shows then? Do you remember?
1: Uh, the first show I went to was at the Long March. Where was that? The Long March is at, is the South, East corner of Broad and South, and it uh, it was on the second floor. I think there's like a dance studio or rock school or something in there now. Mm-hmm. I think there's like a I, I don't know I don't know what's in there and some condos next to it as well. Um, but that would have been sometime in later December, early October, and that would have been the Philadelphia Hardcore Compilation release party.
0: Okay, so this is across from uh, Love Hall, right?
1: Across South Street from Love Hall. Yeah, right. Love 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 was on uh, the north. East corner, and this was a much bigger place. Um, It was like probably the size of this room, I would think. You know,
0: Uh, note to the listener: this is a really big room. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, if it was full to capacity, you could have fit three or four or five hundred people in it. My my recollect, my vague recollection of that gig is. You know, my my crowd estimating skills were very limited at that time. i got to think there might have been 100 people there, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. That was the first time I saw a circle pit. And as I recall, it wasn't like a crowded circle pit. It was more of like 20 or 30 people doing the circle pit, and then maybe 20 or 30 people in a circle outside that, right. you
0: know. Now, when you come in here, you know, you're a young person. You've not experienced anything like this before. Is it? Are you really kind of taken aback by actually seeing all this?
1: No, I was totally psyched because, you know, i had seen pictures of people like wearing overcoats and combat boots and like, you know, uh, slam dancing.
0: Yes.
1: You know, and and I knew about slam dancing. I wasn't necessarily, uh, I mean, I was a little afraid to actually jump in and start slam dancing. That took me a while to warm up to, you know. Um, But no, I was like, oh, here it is, you know, this is, these, these are the things I've been reading about. These people are, you know, playing bands, you know, this is, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm in mean, a music scene now as opposed to, like, in a marching band or concert band or jazz band, you know, okay. with different kind of music scene. And I think uh, I think Wide Eye, I, saw, I know I saw Wide Eye that night. Uh, I'm not sure who else played. I met a lot of people that night. I met the Dead Milkman. I met Larnell Price. I met Patrick Prawl that night. Uh, I was hanging out with Terry and Steve from the Butcher Brothers, I think. I think Terry and Steve and Marty from the Butcher Brothers... And Jose from the Butcher Brothers all lived in a house on 48th Street, which was like, I mean, living in a house on 48th Street now is like, or living at a house on 48th Street then is like living on a house at 62nd Street now. Yeah, you know, if you're like a white punk or whatever. Back in those days, you know, 40th Street was like the where any pen kid stopped. You know, and. I remember hearing of people that lived in apartments at like 42nd and 43rd Street, and that was just unimaginably far away from campus, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas today, that that's a whole different thing, you know. Yeah,
0: university seems to have bought up a lot of that property and kind of changed it pretty dramatically.
1: Universities bought it up and moved it out, you know.
0: And also, the punk scene kind of came into that area and I think kind of gentrified it in some way with kind of artsier people. Oh, it's incredibly in. trendy
1: to About... live in West Philly now. It's like a you know, it's like a little Portland or or whatever, you know. There were a lot of punks living in West Philly back then, but that was more of your sort of like squatter punks, Mm -hmm. you know, and back then it was actually kids that were, like, they were punk rockers. Um, Unlike me where I had, like, a sort of stable home situation, quote-unquote, if you consider that I was living at a dorm and had a place to live, you know, I met a lot of kids that, like, you know, their parents put them out for the weekend or they went out for the weekend, you know, and if it was raining and you couldn't, you know, if it was raining and you had nowhere to go, you would start walking west and find abandoned house and kick in the door, you know, and stay there for the weekend and party there for the weekend, you know. Yeah. Um, and there were, there, were, there were people who tried to move into vacant houses and sort of take them over. I, maybe that was a couple years later. But uh, mostly that kind of stuff really didn't work back then because if you were like squatting in a house, then somebody would come and kick in the door and rob you, you know, and People were always getting robbed and things were always getting broken into, cars were always getting broken into. Um, And there weren't really any police around. There were punks that were like burned out of their squats, you know, just from like the neighbors that didn't like them or things like that as well, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: So, were the bands that that were on the scene at the time that you particularly liked? Um,
1: I thought Iron Cross was a Philadelphia band because they played like the first five or six shows that I went to for whatever reason or played here every month. But, uh, It was mostly bands that my friends were in, people that I knew. And that's something that's always remained constant for me, you know. Um, But uh, Flag of Democracy, Wide Eye, Ruin, Uh, The Informed Sources, The Stickmen, I saw them early on even though they weren't considered punk. Um, Initial Attack played a lot of those gigs. Uh, Autistic Behavior seemed to be playing a lot of shows. Uh, The Butcher Brothers played a lot. I saw a lot of their shows. The Dead Milkmen were playing a lot of shows. Uh, I still have my cassette copy of the Death Rides of Pale Cow demo, which I I think was their their very first release. Um, Being in in Homo Picnic and Kremlin Corps, I went to a lot of those shows. Um, I saw the Morphines play a bunch. Um, Most of the shows I went to started out at Love Hall or Love Club. There were a couple at Long March. I think they only used the Long March for like bigger shows, like Black Flag. On the My War tour, was at Long March? I we would go to Love Hall every weekend, pretty much for at least a you know Fat Howard would show throw about a show every week or two. Mm-hmm. So we'd always go there. Um, I wasn't I wasn't 21, so I wasn't old enough to get in places like the East Side Club or the Kennel Club. Although occasionally I was able to uh, scam in with a fake ID or. Just by pushing our way in sometimes, we would go in a gang, quote-unquote, and, you know, run, th- crush the door and run in. Right. Um, yeah, I guess all, all the stuff early on was, was downtown. Uh, Chuck Meehan was the first guy to bring it to West Philly, I think, with Abe's Steakhouse. Um, what did
0: you think of Abe's as a venue?
1: I thought Abe's was a great venue. We would buy 40s at Johnny Troy's. He sold, uh, he sold underage beer, as much as you wanted, as much as you could carry. Um, it was very conveniently located to where I lived in West Philly, mm-hmm. you know. Um, once again, you know, I can't recall a cop ever coming to Abe's Steakhouse, you know. And this is on 40th Street between Walnut and Market, or Chestnut and Market, you know. And it's, it was the kind of thing where, you know, that room probably held a hundred people. If there were a hundred people inside, the band would finish playing, a hundred people would go out and stand on the sidewalk and smoke pot and drink 40s, you know. Mm-hmm. and. Nobody you know, would say a word. Nobody nobody care. No cops drove by. I don't know why, you know. Um, but yeah, I thought Abe's was a great venue. I must have seen a hundred shows there, probably. Nice.
0: Did you see uh, a fair bit of violence within the scene, or, or was it uh, was not, not very much of it? Not really.
1: Um, within the scene, the only violence I think that Philadelphia had would, you know, as if there was a personal confrontation, you know, like guy, two guys fighting over a girl or... Mm-hmm. Something like that, and even that was pretty rare. Um, All the pits, all the circle pits, all the slam dancing was totally friendly. There was people got, you know, kicked in the face and punched and hurt and things like that, but there was absolutely never, you know, like the sort of modern, sort of mosh slam dancing where people were really trying to fuck other people up, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, People were always helping out, people were always picking other people up. Uh, there was lots of stage dives, there were lots of pylons, you know, where there would be twenty thirty kids just jumping on a pile on another. Nobody would ever get hurt, you know? Right. Um, uh, occasional violence would happen when uh, when bands or gangs from other places would come here when their bands were playing here and then we would uh, we would have to fight with them. There was like Lefty and her skinhead crew. Lefty was a female black skinhead that used to come up to Philadelphia a lot and from where? Uh, DC, Baltimore, whatever that sort of scene was. So it
0: came up with skinheads. Yeah, it
1: came up with skinheads. I don't know if she hung around with Iron Cross or or what, you know. But uh, we did we did fight her gang a couple times, two or three different times. Uh, my weapon of choice was a pool pool ball and a sock.
0: Did you carry this around with you often?
1: No, only when we knew we were going to have fights. Okay. No, only only when we knew that like uh, that crew was coming, or if or something else was going down.
0: Mm-hmm. Whatever happened to her? Do you know? uh, By the
1: way, I think she became a state trooper, Maryland (laughs) state trooper. I just saw that on the internet. You know, on the on the Facebook, everybody talks about what used to go back. But no, I I, I, that that sort of gang or scene they they faded away. That was only a couple times that they came around and they got they got chased away. There was the fight that I've always heard of, and even back then people talked about it a lot. Where uh, the skinheads got chased away from the gig over in uh, Camden. Uh, buff hall, buff hall, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: the minor threat FOD, yeah, so, yeah. Where there there were some fights like that, yeah, skinheads in uh, in Camden, or actually anybody in Camden yeah. is a really bad idea, but skinheads especially seems yeah pretty stupid.
1: So uh, the, 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 even that was rare, but there was a there was it was a pretty ins ins uh, I don't know if insular is the right word and not insulated, but it was pretty like when when Love Hall was going down. And they would have shows every week or every other week. i got to think the biggest shows had 200 people at them or whatever, you know. Mm. And of those 200 people, I would say 150 of those people went every week.
0: Right, and, so they all know each other. everybody. They know how you know? it works. Right.
1: right. So if, you know, if me and Lornell and Patrick and half a dozen other people were standing there drinking 40s, and we see this guy who comes around, that we don't really know him or whatever, but we know who he is and that he's come to shows, and somebody's bothering this guy be it like a skinhead or I don't know, like somebody else that's not a punk rocker walking by or whatever, you know, then we would be like, hey, we've seen that guy I chose before, you know, and we would go, we would go help that person out, you know. Mm-hmm. And like nobody nobody would really we wouldn't allow people to fuck with our own, I guess. That's that sort of thing. And that 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 period of Philadelphia punk rock or whatever, there was a definite and specific scene in that it was a scene of like a couple of hundred people that knew each other and saw each other and you know, worked and partied and played music together with each other regularly over the course of a couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, mostly based I think around like the Love Hall, Love Club, Long March sort of thing. Um, I guess a lot of gigs happened then in Jeff Jenkins' basement as well.
0: Uh, yeah, I've heard people mention that, yeah.
1: Jeff was a DJ from WKDU and I think that was still pretty early on because Fat Howard was throwing those shows there, but that's uh, like I saw DeCruytson in that basement. Husker Du I saw in a basement, you know, yeah, that was a pretty amazing, good show. Uh, Husker Du I saw at Love, Love Hall a couple times, that, they were a killer. Husker Du and the Minutemen I saw, that, that nice, tour. Yeah. I saw the Minutemen, they were one of my favorite bands, so I saw them five or six times, I think.
0: So aside from the more innocuous drugs like pot or whatever, did you see any serious hard drugs moving through the punk scene at the time? Rarely.
1: Um, no, I don't, I don't want to say rarely. It wasn't... Uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't super common um, Everybody smoked brown weed from New Jersey or whatever everybody drank 40s um, I don't think I saw anybody do like saw anybody do like blow or meth until years later when GBH played at the community Education Center and I saw them cutting out lines upstairs mm-hmm. and I, I that must have been 85 or six or something like that That was the first time I saw anything like that. And I I guess there were some people that started, that were into, like, heavier drugs or whatever. But they didn't really hang out with the people that I was with that much. We knew who those people were, I guess. You know, and there weren't really that very many of them. So, yeah, I would say most people just got fucked up on beer, malt liquor.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. So when did you start moving through bands yourself, you know, start entering into bands?
1: Um... Well, there was a talent show sometime in our dorm within the first couple months of moving in there, and me and uh, that guy Mark started a punk rock band for the talent show. Uh, we won a pizza party for our suite of dorm rooms.
0: Very nice. What was your band called?
1: Um, I don't think it had a name at that time, but that was uh, the Nucleus of Kremlin Corps. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, Were
0: you playing drums with it? This no, or- Kremlin
1: Corps I played bass guitar. Oh, yeah. Uh, just because I had, I played a bunch of different instruments in high school bands. And, uh, it was only my junior and senior year in high school that I started playing other things in brass and woodwind. So I was playing a little bit of drums and I was also playing, I learned how to play bass guitar for the jazz band. So I, uh, I knew a little bit about playing guitar more than drums. So I figured I'd play bass guitar and we had one, Mm -hmm. you know, that, that was a thing as well. Uh, so I played bass guitar in Kremlin Corps and then I was a vocalist in Homo Picnic, and then I played bass guitar in Morphines and Einstein's Leisure Time, and then I was a drummer in the Trained Attack Dogs and Morphines, and then I think that's about it for
0: Philadelphia bands.
1: Okay,
0: I remember a girl in my high school had a sticker for the Trained Attack Dogs and I adored her, uh, so I remember always seeing the sticker on her. Before. Who was that? I think her name was Debbie. Uh, I don't know. Uh, She was a little older than me. This was in New Jersey. Uh, Right. But as a young person, seeing the sticker was like, oh, this band must be amazing. Look at this sticker. It's like fluorescent orange and there's a dog on it. It's got to be good. Um, So you said that's the end of bands for Philadelphia. Did you wind up going off to... Uh,
1: Well, I guess that takes us the whole way through to like, you know, after 1990, I was running rave records and I started a band with Mike Dean from Corrosion of Conformity called Nine Finger. And that band toured for a little bit. And then in 93, I joined Brutal Truth.
0: Okay. So that you're coming in, you know, obviously, on drums with Brutal Truth. Yeah,
1: and I was playing drums in Nine Finger as well. I, I, the, after I, I was in a car accident, and after that, instead of like, working to learn how to uh, play guitar again and get my counselors back, I just decided to play drums. That would be easier. And then, So the second time I was in Morphines, I was playing drums. I played drums in Trained Attack Dogs. I played drums in a band called Barely Human. Played drums and serial killers for a couple of rehearsals. Um, yeah, I guess as things went on and people got older, after 1986 or 87, there were more hard drugs around the scene. Mm hmm. But even then, it wasn't like an overpowering thing where it was cool to do hard drugs. It was ultra cool to do hard drugs. So the people that were doing hard drugs would just go do them by themselves, pretty much. Right. So this was
0: never your. No.
1: And the younger people like me would just be like, oh, I want to do hard drugs with those guys. Where did they go? You know? And could never find them. We were just kids or whatever, you know? Right.
0: So you're coming into Brutal Truth. somewhat of a different scene, I suppose, I mean, they, I guess maybe veering more towards metal. Than yeah, I'd hard. never heard of
1: Brutal Truth until uh, a guy from Buzz Oven, this band Buzz Oven that Ninefinger toured with a lot, uh, introduced me to the guys from Brutal Truth and he knew them from somewhere and said that they were looking for a drummer. I'd never really heard their band and they sent me a cassette tape and I learned the songs from that.
0: So they'd already put out what? Perpetual uh, to, Conversion? and mm, or, I mean,
1: what Extreme Conditions Demand, Extreme Responses, yeah. album, and then Perpetual
0: Conversion EP. Right. And then you came in on Need to Control, right? Yeah, okay. I came in into the writing for Need to Control. So how was it moving through this kind of world uh, you know, in contrast to the punk world that you had been you know, in for so many years before?
1: Um, well, Brutal Truth was definitely more sort of a, like a working band. When um, I joined Brutal Truth, we were playing about 250 shows or so a year, probably Jesus. more than that. And that's you know keeping up a recording and rehearsal schedule as well.
0: Um, so this is a fair amount of touring, then. I mean, you're going you yeah, know, I, Europe and other places.
1: Yeah, from from '93 to '98, I'd lived in a suitcase with just my drum set and played you know a couple hundred shows a year.
0: Does that kill you?
1: Uh, no, it makes you stronger, Joe.
0: Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're taking a Nietzschean <laughs> approach. But uh, no, I mean, how did you feel about living that that kind of lifestyle? Uh, i 'd always so consistently
1: i 'd always been interested in playing music and traveling you know and i 'd done some long European tours with punk bands in the late eighties uh, with morphines and I went with f o d on some long tours a couple months in a row um, so I was psyched to do that at that time and uh you know i was I was specifically looking to play in a band that toured a lot and uh travel and see the world and play crazy music and uh a brutal truth. Even though they were a metal band, I considered them and learned the music, and uh, just went from there. You know, mm-hmm. and most of the bands that brutal truth toured and played with back then, I'd never heard of before. We joined them on tour. You know, Cannibal Corpse, D-side.
0: You right. know, so clearly, I mean, these are bands that had huge scenes associated with them though, at, at
1: that know? time. Yeah, but I wasn't into that scene after after punk rock and hardcore sort of faded away. I, you know, I was a record collector, so I started collecting and watching bands like a, like I guess sub pop or touch and go bands because those bands came through Philadelphia regularly and they always fucking partied and we partied with them and we went to all those shows a lot of the same people I hung out with when I was a much younger punk rocker you know we had sort of like a crew there was you know like and we would always go down do the same things you know we would go down to the Khyber Pass and instead of paying to get in we'd all bum rush the door and they couldn't right. throw us out because there were more of us and we were bigger you know stuff sure. like that you know but you used to be able to go to the Khyber Pass you know, Mud Honey would play there on a Monday, and the Butthole Surfers would play there on a Thursday, and on Saturday night, I don't know, uh, you know, Killdozer and somebody else would play there, you know. It, they just had shows constantly all the time. Revival had a lot of big shows then at that time as well. Um, so yeah, I was going to a lot of shows before I sort of left with Brutal Truth and, and uh only went to play shows uh-huh. after that, pretty much
0: so how did you feel it was dealing with the uh, you know the dirt heads like kind of moving in you know with this kind of uh, a kind of a sort of different scene and dealing with the people associated with that the, the dirt heads you the mean turn- the metal heads? the metal heads yeah
1: um, I, I really didn't have to deal with them scene-wise the way I did when I was in Philadelphia because I was coming into it as a as a guy in like a band that was already sort of established like brutal truth was sort of an established band when I joined them, or at least becoming established, mm-hmm. you know. Whereas, uh, whereas, like a lot of the times in Philadelphia, like when I first got here, I was like some young kid, you know, that you know sort of had to work my way into the scene or whatever. And most of the bands that I played in in Philadelphia were, I guess, I don't know what you would call a second tier band or third tier band, you know where it's like if the Dead Milkmen were headlining a show or Ruin was headlining a show, one of the bands that I was in would be like the second band on the bill or the mm-hmm. opening band on the bill, you know? Right. So that was that was sort of a, a different thing to me, even though Brutal Truth was many times the opening band on the bill or the third or fourth band on the bill. It's kind of like uh, a smaller fish in a bigger pond, which I really enjoyed, mm-hmm. and... Uh, like I say, at that time I was mostly interested in just meeting people and having fun and traveling around you know so if I would roll up to like you know the metal show the Cannibal Corpse gig in Amarillo Texas with Brutal Truth I you know I was totally psyched to be there I would head out in the parking lots if I could find somebody with some weed to smoke with the drummer from Brutal Truth you know yeah. and you know like with Brutal, Brutal has a cult following even back then and, and still you know you can Go into just about any heavy metal crowd and find a couple people there that are like, oh, Brutal Truth, man, wow, you know, even, Mm -hmm. you know, even in the most mundane of metal crowds these days, you can find some Brutal Truth fans. So that, that's, that's, you know, like I say, I really embrace that. I was totally psyched to travel. I was totally psyched to, like, meet new people and, you know, gain new experiences and. I I still had a lot of the, uh, you know, party now because the world's going to, the world's going to totally end sort of thing going on with me, you know, and and at that time I was still young enough that I didn't really have that much responsibilities and and things like that, so I I was able to go do it and so I did, you know.
0: Right. Now is there a a time where, like, the more serious rich comes into play? I mean, uh, you know, where you decide the world's probably not going to end and you're not going to be such a, you know, party guy?
1: Well, no, not really. Um... I'm still pretty much convinced of an, an apocalyptic future for our planet. However, um, I think what I've learned over the course of decades, and this sort of realization came around as I was starting up uh, Total Fucking Destruction after Brutal Truth broke up in '98, uh, and uh, it, it was around then I came to the realization that the uh, the apocalypse will take a will be a slow motion apocalypse. It might take a hundred or a thousand years. Uh, for humanity to, to crumble and explode it, it probably like back in the day we assumed that in 1984 you know uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan 666 right. would yes. reveal himself as satan mm-hmm. press the button and yeah. destroy the world and well, you the nuclear have two holocausts. superpowers
0: so, who were you know seemingly seconds away on the nuclear clock from doing that exactly yeah.
1: exactly and uh nowadays uh you know i guess with just the benefit of age and hindsight i realize that you know chances are there won't be a cataclysmic apocalypse. More likely it will be the slow-motion apocalypse where everything slowly falls apart, mm-hmm. you know?
0: Now you have a son, right? A daughter. A daughter, sorry. Yes. Uh, so, you elected then to make a daughter and sort of put her into the, the situation. Do you think that you've given her a rather grim world to move into?
1: Uh, I, the world is what it is. I didn't give her, I didn't give her the world. I'm giving her uh, the skills that she needs to survive in this world and be, be it uh, pre-apocalyptic, apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Um, i'm I'm pretty comfortable with that, you know i've I've uh, I've wasted my share of the planet's resources and I do my best to uh, you know to leave as small a footprint as possible. Um, so i I feel okay and you know spend a little bit of uh, spend a little bit of the earth's time and money raising a daughter, you know Man. I, I'm okay with that. Um,
0: Do you think that coming in through, through this, this underground for so long, uh, moving through it and kind of seeing all the facets of it, that you will kind of impart some of those I- ideals that, or the ethos or something into your daughter you know, going forward?
1: Sure. Um, the, the DIY ethos has always really appealed to me because you know, even before I knew about music, uh, you know, living out on the farm, uh, my father was always teaching me things and you know, telling me things like uh, you know... You have to do this for yourself. You have to learn how to do this. When I'm not here, you're going to have to do this stuff, you know. And, of course, he was talking about, like, fixing tractors and and things like that, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, I had always been of the mindset that, you know, something is best done if you do it yourself and things like that. And then when I got to the, you know, punk scene and people were like, oh, we're putting out records, you know. Oh, I'm putting out a zine then that that sort of stuff always appealed to me, you know. I put out a zine for a while, I started my own bands, we all got together and put out our own 7-inch, you know. Um, I've started three or four record labels over the years, and have always done that, you know, with just myself, or another person, or something like that, you know. Um, So that's sort of, I really, I took the do-it-yourself thing as like, you know, if I want to have a band, and I want to go on a tour, and I want to put out a record, and I want to make music, I'm just going to go ahead and do that myself, Mm -hmm. you know. Um even today, when I do that kind of stuff, and especially with the internet it's 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 easier you know you can do it yourself and press a button and send it out there you know right, right. um so that's 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 sort of permeated not just my musical life but also you know like the life I live with with my daughter and family and um and just my general mindset you know
0: mm-hmm. <clears throat> so i guess to to finish up. Something that I've asked people who are, say, the older people that I've talked to, like you, who have kind of seen this thing being born and and moved through it over the course of the years, that is, you know, punk and its various permutations, hardcore, grindcore, whatever. And then I've also asked really young people that I've talked to who have come into this thing in the last so many years, where it was already, you know, 20, 25, 30 years old, uh, practically, by the time they came into it, was, do you think, or did you think, coming in and coming through this thing, that this would be something that would last, and can you kind of see why it retains an appeal, even this many years on, to younger folks coming into it?
1: <coughs> well, when I was coming into it, I really didn't think it would last. Like I say, it's not that I didn't think the music or the scene would last, in the world. I just didn't think the world was gonna <coughs> last, you know, and I would just party and play music and watch cool bands and go to cool parties until that happened, you know? Um, as far as kids coming into the scene now... And getting into it, you know. Um, I, I can see the appeal. I'm a little skeptical of it, you know, because like, uh, it's sort of, it's sort of just sort of like a fashion.
0: For that, some people, for, maybe for
1: some, you know. But if I see a kid going down the street in a black uh, leather jacket with a mohawk, do I know that he's like a punk rocker? You know, somebody who has the same sort of values and things as me? Back in the day, I used to know that. I used to know that this guy was, you know, getting punched in the head the same way I was getting punched in the head for looking funny. Nowadays, if I see somebody dressed as a punk rocker, they might be the quarterback of the football team and a total jock dick.
0: Right.
1: Same way that that person is dressed up as a punk rocker, they might decide they're into the Grateful Dead. Because the Grateful Dead, Jerry Garcia's been dead for what, twenty years now.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have punks okay? older than that. The great, the
1: great, the Grateful Dead still tours. You know, yeah. Phil Lesh or whatever. There are still kids these days like get into the Grateful Dead. You know, that mm-hmm. go around dressed like hippies. You know.
0: So. Does it seem goofy and anachronistic to you? I mean, I know yeah. what I used to see people dressed as hippies when I was younger. It's like, what? That that's you know what somebody else's, not my, but somebody else's parents did. You know. Yeah.
1: So- I mean, there's guys I know from back in the day that wore a Mohawk in, were wearing a Mohawk in 1983 when I got here, and are 50 years old and wearing a Mohawk in their leather jacket now. Okay, so they're punks. They've been punk. They are punk. Somebody who's got a Mohawk and a leather jacket, they, we don't know. They They just put that on, you know. Mm-hmm. And then the same... I guess somebody who was a hippie in the 1960s, in the 1960s, and is 60 year olds now, 60 years old now, and still wearing that long hair and hippie love beads and doing that same thing as a real hippie. Looks a little you know? goofy
0: though. But. but
1: if you, you know, if you go into a classroom at the right school, you can see one kid dressed as a hippie, one kid dressed as a punk rocker, maybe one kid's looking new wave, and I don't know. I guess somebody will be dressed up like a a raver or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that's more of just like. I think that's just endemic to Western society of where there's like no culture now, or it's or all no culture is all culture. The serpent is eating it, its
0: own tail. Yeah,
1: it's, it's like it's the end of history, you know. So, like, if you want to be hip, you can dress like you're from the '50s. You know, there are guys that go out dressed like they're from the Mad Men. You know, where they wear like their their things. They're wearing a skinny tie. And, yeah. You know, or you can the, go steampunk. You know, steampunk. <laughs> okay. So you know it. That that's sort of a different thing to me. You know, as opposed to like. You know, back in the day when I had, like, a ripped-up shirt, it was because, like, somebody tried to beat me up and ripped my shirt up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when we had mohawks, we would shave them into ourselves. To, if you wanted to get your ear pierced, uh, you would have to use a potato or an apple or a piece of soap and, and you know, push your, ear, push your earring through, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you actually had to, like, sort of go and live that lifestyle, you know? Whereas today you can you know order your punk outfit online and have it delivered tomorrow you know we had to like make stuff and find it and buy it and steal it and shit like that you know and I I mean there are bands that that play punk music today and there are bands that play 60s rock and all that stuff has come around and gone around and I don't see where I I guess there are certain scenes now in Philadelphia you know and those kids know each other the same way that we did but i don't know i I think i think things are authentic in their time you know i'm not interested in seeing like you know a husker reunion or a misfits reunion or a black flag reunion you know if i want to go see a band now i'll go see a band that's like some crazy kids going wild, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to a bunch of old farts reuniting, you know? Yeah, right, yeah. And uh, those reunion gigs are a mixture of, like, total geriatric people my age just being like, oh, man, they were so great when I saw them, and, like, young kids that are like, it's a curiosity for them, you know, they have never seen Black Flag, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that there are younger people who think that they missed out on something amazing, uh and what they miss actually is what they should be doing now which is going forward into the future. I mean the past is certainly great. It's great to listen to some old records, but ultimately you're living in 2013. Right. Get get on with it. I mean, Move forward. In 1983
1: we didn't listen to old records. We thought old music was total shit, you know. If somebody was listening to a Black Sabbath record, that was music from 1972. Why are you going to fucking listen to a Black Sabbath record, you know? In in 1983 we weren't interested in listening to 60s music, or 70s music, or 80s music. We were listen, interested in listening to punk rock, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I, was, if I was, you know, 17 years old again today, I don't know that I'd become a punk rocker because why do I want to listen to Black Flag, man? This music was pertinent and powerful in 1983 and 1985, but I want something that's now, you know? And that's, that's what youth music, that's what youth culture and music and rock and roll has always been about, you know? Um, from like like I was a huge Bill Haley fan from when I was a, a baby onwards, you know. But uh and if Bill Haley and the Comets come around now, I'm not gonna go watch them play, you know. If They're I'm gonna come around do, for
0: the grave though. Uh, they, I think they I think
1: they might still tour, you know. It's kinda Is like Is he still
0: alive, Bill Haley?
1: No, he's not. He played <laughs> Woodstock. Oh, okay. Uh, he played yeah. Woodstock and went gone he went on for a couple years after that. But I think it was kinda the thing where like the comets, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's the same way like uh What's the guy's name? The clarinet player that died in World War II. His band's still going on. Benny Goodman. Oh. Sun Ra Orchestra.
0: Yeah, yeah. You yeah.
1: know, stuff like that. So. Um, yeah, I'm not so interested in reunion bands or retro scenes or things like that, you know. E- even like. You know, there have been people talking about like a ruined reunion or whatever, but. Gee whiz, I saw some ruined gigs that really blew my mind. you know, I, I don't know if I don't know if they would like blow my mind if I went to see them these days, you know? And especially now that I'm older and have more responsibility and less time to fucking party or whatever, you know. If I'm going to go to a show, I want it to, like, blow my mind and be something, you know, amazing.
0: You've also gone to three million shows probably at this point, so I can't imagine that it has a tremendous appeal, you know, it, it, this, this many years on. Usually,
1: I mean, I still play a lot with Brutal and TFD, so I don't, it has to be something that's really going to blow me away to get me to go out to a gig, you know. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I guess the difference there is like back in the day, man. When I, every show I went to, I was amazed by you know one or one or two or more of the bands. You know, mm. I mean there were some bands back then I didn't like, like oh I don't like them, you know they're too whatever, or whatever. Yeah. But if there were four or five or six bands playing at Love Hall, a couple of them would just totally blow me away, man. When I saw DYS uh, on New Year's Eve at Love Hall, I wet my pants when they started playing, you know? And these guys had things that we had never seen in Philadelphia. They had like Marshall Stacks, like brand new amplifiers. That was that was the first time I ever saw somebody with a wireless guitar when Mm -hmm. DYS played. And you know, we were kids that like in our bands we had like, you know, shit that we had stolen or got at the pawn shop, or you would borrow stuff, or like, we had gigs where like one guy would bring a bass guitar, and three bands would use that, you know. Because mm-hmm. although the band had knew their music and everything, the bass player didn't have a guitar, you know. Yeah. So when we saw these guys coming in with like Marshall stacks and, you know, the guy had a flying V with, and they didn't have any cables in their guitars, you know, how how their because <laughs> their guitars aren't even plugged in. We didn't understand that, you know. Yeah. And then they just started playing, and it fucking blew you away, you know. So, you know, if I'm if I'm looking to if I'm looking to get out these days, I, I want to see a band like that, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thank you very much. No, uh, yeah, cheers, for dude. To me. Uh...
1: That's the size of it, man.
0: Got it.